Welcome to the Vintage Church Podcast. My name is Matt, and I'm the lead pastor at Vintage Church. We're so grateful that you would take time to lean into a teaching from one of our weekend worship gatherings. Each week, one of our pastors opens the Word of God with a relevant message in the hopes that you are inspired to live and love like Jesus. We invite you now to open your heart and mind and lean into the Word of God. Grab your Bibles, if you would. Go ahead and open your Bibles up to 1 Kings. Go to 1 Kings chapter 17. We're going to walk through 1 Kings 17, 18, and 19 today. Yep, I don't know how we're going to get through it all, but we're going to try. Come on, somebody. Y'all with me? Say amen. Anybody glad to be in the house of God on Father's Day? Come on. So does uh, anybody ever heard of the Murph? Show of hands if you know what the Murph is. Look around. That's the crazy people in the room. Uh, even, even if you've never done it. And for those of you, let me enlighten maybe those of you who have never heard of what that is. The Murph is a workout. And it's named after a Navy SEAL named Michael Murphy. He was, you ever seen the movie or read the book Lone Survivor? He was one of those guys who lost their life, uh, lost his life in that attack and part of that thing in Afghanistan. And on Memorial Day, because we know that this is more than just a time to barbecue, it's a time to recognize those men and women who paid the ultimate sacrifice that we might be free. So on on Memorial Day, a lot of people do this workout in honor of Michael Murphy and all the men and women who have sacrificed for our freedom. They do this workout because they want to honor them and because we're crazy. Uh, And if you don't know what the Murph is, here it is. Run a mile, 100 pull-ups, 200 push-ups, 300 squats, run a mile in a 20-pound weighted vest. Told you. Well, so as Memorial Day came closer this year, I thought, I want to do the Murph. And, like, and, and understand, I'll, I didn't say this in the first service. I probably need to repent and just be honest. I didn't do it exactly the way you're supposed to do it. It's a little bit modified, okay? Because, like, I got enough weight of my own to carry around for all this. Come on, somebody. Like, I got the 20 pounds right here. I don't need to put a vest on to have it. So if you weigh 140 pounds, like, shut up. Even with that 20-pound vest, I'm pulling more weight than you. Come on. What was I saying? (laughs) So anyway, I was going to do it. And so I'm like, okay, I'm going to do this, but I know I'm not going to need to do it alone. So I I talked my wife into doing it. And my wife's a runner. She's super fit, if you know her. She's the one that, like, we're running the mile. She's 17 feet in front of us just because she's trying to show off. But I called a couple of of my friends, Preston Steele, who's our student pastor. And you you know if you do student ministry, you're a little bit out there, right? And then I called my friend Ryan Scarborough, who's also in the room somewhere. He, he's a part of our church. And he's one of those people, like, he does, like, marathons and stuff. He'd be like, Matt, do this marathon with me. 26 miles? Dude, that's why God invented cars. You're crazy. <laughs> Even back in the day, they said, let's get on a horse if it's that far, okay? <laughs> so it's run a mile. So they came over, and we decided we would do it in my neighborhood. We'd do it, like, pull-ups and stuff, because I've got some stuff in my garage. We'd run in my neighborhood and that kind of thing. And so we, everybody showed up that morning, and we were ready to go. And I'm not a runner. They always talk about those runners high. Yeah, you get high, and then you go running. I don't understand what you're talking about, because I've never had the runners high. I've had the runners want to die, but not that's. So we're, we're, we're running that first mile, and everybody's thinking, this is the dumbest thing I've ever decided to do. We finish the mile, then we come in, and we, you, you do and the 100 pull-ups, 200 push-ups, 300 squats, and, and about halfway through the, the, the squats and the pull-ups, and all kinds of, I'm thinking, I'm going to throw up or die, whichever comes first. I don't know. This is insane. 
And there, there were, and there were moments that like we're, you just, you're just pushing through, just pushing through. And so you do, you do the mile, you do the hundred pull-ups, you do the two hundred uh, push-ups, you do the three hundred squats, and then you got to run another mile. And in that last mile, I'm thinking. Lord, come back. Jesus, return right now. This is a good time for the rapture because I want to get out of this and I don't want to be sore tomorrow. But all throughout that time, y'all, there, were, there wasn't a moment. There were multiple moments where I wanted to quit. And even on the other side of that, I'm reminded that you can never attempt to do anything of any significance in life. Look at me and not have multiple moments where you want to quit. You cannot do anything of any significance in this life. I'm not talking about you have a moment where you want to quit. I'm talking multiple moments where you want to quit that you must overcome if you're going to get to the finish line. And can we just admit, we live in a culture of quitters. It doesn't have to be... We don't just quit when it's difficult, y'all. We quit when it's uncomfortable. We don't just quit when it's uncomfortable. We quit when it gets some measure of inconvenient. It's just easier to get divorced. It's just easier to find another job. It's just easier not to have the conversation. Like, we are a culture of quitters. And if you're going to do anything significant for God... In the one life you've been given, you've got to figure out how to overcome the quit. How to overcome the quit. And this message is for the people in the room that are sitting in the midst of the quit and trying to decide what to do. And my prayer is that sometime throughout this morning, God's gonna speak something into your heart to give you the courage the discipline, the fortitude to not quit in an area that you can't quit in. See, there's some things you can walk away from. A job you can quit, a God calling you cannot abandon. Believe me, I know. I told y'all back in the fall that over the last year and a half, two years, I've had those moments. And I don't say this to you because I need your pity. I say this to you because as your pastor, I feel a responsibility to be transparent. When the end of last summer, going into last fall, for the first time in the 14 years of the lead pastor of this church, I typed out my resignation because I was done. And I'm grateful now that I didn't quit then. And if you've ever felt like you wanted to quit, or if you're sitting in this room now and you feel like you want to quit, can I just tell you that you're not alone and you're in really good company? Because this book, Scripture is full of people who had moments where they wanted to quit. Nearly every significant figure in all of Scripture went through multiple moments when they wanted to throw in the towel. And there's something to learn from these men and women about how to endure those seasons of quit. And when I was in mine, this is where I went. See, when you, when you wanna quit, you can either wallow in that motion, in emotion, or you can wade into the word of God and find hope. And the decision you make in that moment will determine what happens next. Y'all with me? Come on. 
You can either wallow in those emotions that are pushing you towards quit, or you can wade into the word of God and learn from the men and women who wanted to quit and didn't. And one of those for me is the prophet Elijah, whose story unfolds in the passages and the scriptures and the verses and chapters that I invited you to turn to a bit ago. See, Elijah, Elijah is the story that I have run to many times in my life when I wanted to quit. And y'all, I'll be honest, I never wanted to quit as bad as I wanted to quit about a year ago. The quit in me was stronger than anything else at that time. And I knew, like, if I didn't, if I didn't do the right thing, if I didn't run to the right place, I was going to quit. And now, if God was done with me, that was fine. But if he wasn't, I needed to push on and I needed to find the things that I needed. And I couldn't find them in affirmation from people. I couldn't find them in something from the world. I had to look to God to get it. And Eliza has that moment. It's in 1 Kings, the latter part of verse 4 of chapter 19, where Eliza says, I've had enough. Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my ancestors. A couple weeks ago, we talked about escaping exhaustion. I'm not talking to the people today that say I'm exhausted. I'm talking to the people today that say I'm done. I'm done. And that's where Elijah finds himself in this moment. When he looks to God, he says, God, I'm, I'm not exhausted. I'm not tired. I'm not just weary. I am done. And can I just pause for a minute and say, if you're echoing that sentiment, Lord, take my life, and you're in a position where that is something you're seriously considering, please have a conversation with us. The church has made people feel like if you're in that position, you should feel guilty and you don't have faith. One of the most powerfully anointed prophets of God felt what you feel. So it's okay that you feel it. It's not okay that you keep it to yourself. So you need to tell us. You need to tell somebody because the enemy will move into that space and try to rob you of everything that will keep you going. Talk to somebody. Elijah says, I'm done. But if you're gonna find your way out of weary, you gotta figure out how you got there. That the way, understanding why is key to the way out. And for a, for a lot of my life, when I've read this story and seen Elijah in this place, I've kind of gotten some of the things about his story wrong. Can I confess? I even think a lot of the ways that we frame what happens to Elijah in this moment and even where he is, and oftentimes preachers like me have mischaracterized. Let me quickly kind of walk you to this moment. Let me give you some backstory. Elijah was a prophet of God. And I don't know what you think a prophet is, but he wasn't a fortune teller. Prophets at times would point things to that would happen in the future, but more often, instead of pointing people to future things, they were trying to pull people back to God. 
That was the major role of the prophets in the Old Testament. During this time in the nation of Israel, when they were constantly drifting away from God to something that was not God, the prophets would be the mouthpiece to say, no, you need to come back. That thing you're worshiping, it is not worthy. That thing is not God. There is one true God, and here's what he has said to me that he's gonna do to you to prove it. And at the time, Elijah is appointed by God as prophet. It's a bad time in the nation of Israel, y'all. See, from, from Moses to now Ahab, who is king of the nation of Israel when Elijah steps forth, it's been 200 years of crazy. 19 kings that have refused to really understand God in so many ways. The nation of Israel is now split over civil divide and you've got the northern and the southern and you've got all kinds of chaos happening. And the Bible says that Ahab is the worst of them yet. And he's married to a lovely woman named Jezebel. And he goes to Ahab and says, Ahab, listen, you're worshiping a God named Baal. And there, were, there wasn't just one Baal, there was multiple Baals, but the Baal they were worshiping at the time was this, this, this Baal God of, of fertility that was kind of the, the God that they thought would help produce children and produce crops and all that kind of stuff. And so God said, I'm gonna show you that this little God that is no God that you're praying to is not actually God, that I'm God, and how I'm gonna show you is it ain't gonna rain till I say it's gonna rain. And Elijah tells Ahab, God told me to tell you it ain't gonna rain till I say it's gonna rain. And you know what Ahab does? He gets mad at Elijah because we have a culture that's always tends to get mad at the messenger. So y'all don't get mad at me when I start saying things that ain't easy. <laughs> and of course, they blame Ahab. Ahab and Jezebel blame Elijah. They don't take responsibility. They don't take ownership. Ahab doesn't own his failure as a man, as a leader, as a king. He doesn't go to his wife and try to bring about change. He gets mad at Elijah, and so Elijah has to run away. And God provides. He leads him down to this brook and feeds him from the water. And he has a raven bring him loaves of outback bread every single day to nourish his spirit and his heart. He was God. He could do it. Until the point where it comes, the brook dries up because of the drought. And he says, now I know it's time to go on. And you know where he leads him next? He leads him to, the, leads him to this town called Zarephath. That's just not any town. That's the town where the, the Baal worship that is happening in Israel right now was kind of born. So he's like, I'm gonna go show up that God on his own turf <laughs> so God can show off, he's God. You can't, he can. But he leads him to this widow and he says, I'm gonna take you to this widow and this widow is gonna provide for you and he finds this widow and he says, hey ma'am, um, would you bring me a cup of water and also bring me some bread? And she says, well actually I'm gonna go back because I got just enough to make just enough oil and just enough flour to make one cake of bread. So here's my plan, we're gonna eat some bread then we're gonna die. She was a cheerful lady. <laughs> That's exactly what she says. She says, I don't, I don't have enough for you and me and my son. I have a son at home, she's a widow. She says, I'm gonna make some bread for me and we're gonna eat and we're gonna have a diet and we're gonna die, it's gonna be a good time. And he says, no, no, listen. First bring me some bread. And then every time you go back to that oil and to that flour, to that jug and that jar, there will always be enough. God's gonna provide. And that's exactly what happens. She does it, she walks in obedience, she provides for him and every day, and I just see her like this, every day she goes back in the jar, she's like. I don't know who this dude is, but he was right. And day after day, goes back to the jug, goes back to the jar, there's oil, there's flour, feed him, and, and this goes on for, we really don't even know how long. But day after day, he begins 
He's just staying there waiting for the next assignment from God. And then there comes a point where this woman's son, she, he gets sick and he dies. And again, she, she goes to Elijah like, what have you done? He says, bring me the boy. And the Bible says he goes and he stretches himself out over him a handful of times and the boy comes back to life. And what's interesting, and I, I want you to see this verse. Let's find it. It's in Acts chapter 17, verse 24. Excuse me, I said Acts. First Kings. First Kings 17, verse 24. It says, Then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know you are a man of God, and the Lord's word from your mouth is true. And when I read that, I'm like, Now you know? Now you know? Day after day, you went back to a jug in a jar that should have been empty, but it had something. It's amazing how the goodness and favor of God can be right in front of us every single day, and we ignore it. Oh, now I know. I pray that it doesn't take something as drastic as that for you to recognize the little goodness of God that is scattered all throughout your life. And finally, God says to Elijah, to Elijah, it's time. Go tell Ahab, rain's on the way. So Elijah starts making his way back, and he runs into a guy named Obadiah. And Obadiah was a man very much like Elijah. He had believed in God. He had been protecting God's people. He had been taking prophets and hiding them away because Jezebel was killing them in droves. And Obadiah, he says to Ob Elijah says to Obadiah, Obadiah, go tell Ahab to meet me in this spot. And Obadiah says, nah, bro, uh-uh. Because if I tell Ahab to meet you there, and somewhere between the time when I tell him to meet you and you're supposed to meet him, God calls you somewhere else and you don't show up, he's gonna kill me. And, and Elijah says, no, I'm gonna be there. Time's coming. It's gonna rain. So he goes and he tells him, and Ahab says, like, he says, you're the one who's ruining everything. This is, all this is your fault. It's not me. It's not the fact that I'm letting my wife do all kinds of crazy things, and we're leading the nation of Israel far away from the one true God, the God of our ancestors, and I'm continuing to go wayward and, and allow all these other things to creep in and rob God of his glory. He says, no, man, this is your fault. And, and Elijah says, you know what? I'll tell you what. Let's, let's just figure this thing out. Let's go up to Mount Carmel. Let's have a little face-off, a little showdown. You bring all them prophets of Baal and all them prophets of Asherah, who was another uh, false deity that they were worshiping. He said, we're going to go up on Mount Carmel. We're going we, to have us a time. We're going to see what really, we're going to see who's God. And he says, when he, when he gets the people together, he makes a statement that is so, so amazing and so profound. Go to 1 Kings 18 and move into verse 20 and 21. It says, so Ahab summoned all the Israelites and gathered the prophets at Mount Carmel. Then Elijah approached all the people and he said, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is, follow him. But the people did not answer him a word. He says, look, y'all, we, we can't keep doing this. At some point, we got to break this generational pattern that's been happening for far too long. See, the nation of Israel was, again, not much unlike us. When things are one way, you're all about God. When things are another, you're not. It's funny how with circumstance, look at me, it's 
funny how the circumstances of our lives dictate the commitment to our God. He said, it's time to make a decision. Man, you can't, you can't keep doing this. So they go up on Mount Carmel. He said, if you get a bull, I'll get a bull. We'll prepare them. We'll get them ready. And we're both going to pray. And whoever's God answers with fire, that's the one who's the true God. And so the scripture says, so, so Elijah says, hey, I tell you what, I'll be a gentleman. Y'all go first. And it says these, these false prophets, these false guys, they get up there, they prepare the altar, and then they start, they start singing, they start dancing, they start doing all the things, they're praying. But here's the thing, a God that don't exist can't do anything. Somebody just needed to hear that. You're worshiping a God that doesn't exist and wondering why your life looks the way it does, why you keep coming up empty, why you still feel lonely, why there's still a void in your life, because you're looking for something to give you what only God can. It kind of comes to the point, like they start slashing themselves. And, and I love Elijah, he, I can relate. He kind of sort of starts talking. He's like, what's the matter? Where's your God? He taking a nap? There's one way that you can kind of translate the Hebrew that maybe he says, where's your God? Is he on the toilet? I like to think that's exactly what Elijah said. Until finally the point comes and he and Elijah just watched this unfold for some time. And then in Verse 36 of 1 Kings chapter 18. At the, time of, at, the, at the time for offering the evening sacrifice, the prophet Elijah approached the altar and said, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, today let it be known that you are God in Israel and I am your servant and that at your word I have done all these things. Answer me, Lord. Answer me so that the people will know that you, the Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the Lord's fire fell, consumed the burnt offering, consumed the wood, consumed the stones, consumed the dust, and licked up the water that was in the trench because they had doused it with water multiple times. And Elijah said, boom. Verse 39, when all the people saw it, they fell face down and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. There's this awesome, undeniable, powerful display to distinguish the one and only true God from the false one that they had been worshiping. And in that moment, there are, we don't know, it says all the people. Who knows how many that was? Was that all the people standing there? Was it the entire nation? But it, when it says all the people, it didn't really mean all the people because there's two very specific people that didn't bend the knee to God. And Elijah goes and has all those false prophets killed and eventually says reigns on the way. And I love verse 44 of chapter 18. It says, on the seventh time he reported, there's a cloud as small as a man's hand coming up from the sea that even God can bring a flood from a small cloud. But what happens next is I think very crucial to understanding where Elijah is when we started our conversation today. It says that on the other side of the mountain, Ahab 
told Jezebel everything that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Stop right there. Don't go to verse two just yet, y'all. On the other side of, of all this happening, that Ahab, who has constantly passed the buck, placed the blame, ignored his responsibility in all this, constantly sat on the sidelines and if not blatantly approved their approval of, of, of worshiping Baal, at least allowed it to happen. Now he's witnessed this amazing miracle. Y'all, this wasn't a magic trick. It was a miracle of God to display his power. Not to bring attention to Elijah, but to draw people back to him. That's why God does everything he does. He's trying to draw us back. He's trying to display his glory. He's trying to get us to understand who he is. And you would think that what Elijah goes, Ahab goes to Jezebel and says, Jezebel, we've been wrong. We've gotten this so wrong. I can't deny what I just saw with my eyes. I won't let you push me to these false gods anymore. There's no way. I watched them pray and nothing happened. Why are we gonna keep praying to a God that doesn't exist? I know he doesn't exist. I know the God that Elijah serves does. I watched it with my own eyes. And as a preacher, that's what I would expect. I mean, the most impressive miracle should have the most effective result. But in verse two, it says, so Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, Elijah, we were wrong. You're great. We love you. We worship God. Nope. She says, I'm going to kill you. I haven't had quite that response on a message on Sunday, but it's come close a couple of times. She says, hey, I'm going to kill you. So I just want to put that in perspective. Elijah, of all the people that needed this miracle to impact their faith, it was Ahab and Jezebel. You know why? Because leadership matters. The nation of Israel would always go the way of the king. His influence mattered. That's why leadership matters. That's why our influence matters. Elijah knew it's awesome that all these people have seen this and are turning to God. But if Ahab and Jezebel don't turn, this whole thing is not gonna turn. And her response isn't, Elijah, you were right, we were wrong, it's awesome, we give ourselves to God, we're sorry. No, it's like, I'm gonna kill you. May the gods ever deal with me as severely if I don't make you like the ones that you killed yesterday. And so verse three, chapter nine, then Elijah became afraid and immediately ran for his life. And now the way that I have characterized and the way I think many of us have characterized what happens next is a little bit off. Because I've heard preachers unpack what happens next of, of, of Elijah making all kinds of mistakes. That Elijah finds himself now just wanting to die because he had done all these things wrong. That even say, you know, the reason why Elijah's here is because after this moment, after he, he was just so burnt out. The dude just spent three years being fed by ravens. He just watched a miracle happen every single day when the jar in the jug had flour and oil. He had just watched his God send fire from heaven. I don't know that that's a good thing to say. Oh, he's burned out. 
So what if that's not it? What if it's not a, a lack of, of rest or, or watching God? And it says he retreats. And even the way the retreat is described it sometimes is very interesting. Look at it with me. Go back into chapter 19, latter part of verse 3. It says, when he came to Beersheba, that belonged to Judah, he left his servant there, but he went only a day, he went a day's journey into the wilderness. He sat down under a broom tree and prayed that he might die. He said, I've had enough, Lord, and this is where we started. Take my life, for I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down, slept under the broom tree. He took a nap. I would submit to you that in this moment, Elijah is doing the very thing he needed to do in order to keep going. Sometimes I've heard this characterized as somehow that Elijah's in disobedience. Like, bro, you just saw Mount Carmel. You go look Jezebel in the face and say, I'll send fire on you too, woman. And somehow this is some kind of cowardly act that he's running away from everything. I would say he's not running away from them. He's running toward God because he knows that something needs to happen in his spirit if he's gonna keep going forward. Even in that moment where he said, I've heard, he's, I've heard it characterized when it says he leaves his servant and goes off by himself. See, he's even avoiding community. He's walking away from people. Maybe he's not walking away from community. Maybe he's walking towards some needed solitude where he can get along with God and figure out what to do next. We saw Jesus do something similar, didn't we? In the Garden of Gethsemane, he tells his disciples, hey, y'all stay over here and pray. I need to go get along with God. And there are some moments when, when, yeah, you need community. You need people to help you through. But there's a time when you just need solitude to find the voice of God and get away from the noise and the opinions of everybody else. So I'm just going to go sit under this broom tree and wait for God to speak. And he says, I've had enough, Lord. And I think even the way you see God's response is a indicator that Elijah is exactly where he needs to be because it says, and it, this happens twice, so suddenly an angel touched him and the angel told him, get up and eat. And then he looked and there at his head was a loaf of bread baked over hot stones and in a jug of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. That when God finds him there, look at me, when God finds him there, he doesn't greet Elijah with a harsh rebuke. He greets him with a gentle touch. He doesn't say, dude, what are you doing here, you, you coward? He says, Elijah, get up, eat, drink. And then look what happens next. Go to, uh, go to verse 7. It says, then again, verse 7, then the angel of the Lord returned for a second time and touched him. And he said, get up and eat or the journey will be too much for you. Verse 8, so he got up, he ate and drank. Then on the strength from the food, he walked 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. Do you know what Horeb is? It's another name for Mount Sinai. Do you remember Mount Sinai? That's where... Moses met with God face to face. That 
Elijah isn't necessarily just running away from his problems. He's retreating to the God that can solve them. He's running toward God, not away from God. He's going to the place where God's presence was most known, this place where Moses got to see God up close, where God met with Moses and spoke things into him like never before. That Elijah's in this moment when everything in him wants to quit. And this is not some disobedient rebellion. This is a necessary retreat for God to give him what he needs so that he might return and keep doing what God has called him to do. And I would submit to you the heartbreak in Elijah is not just over fear of what Jezebel would do to him. That he's just so scared of Jezebel. He's already said he's ready to die. He said, Lord, take my life. That maybe it's not fear over Jezebel. It's frustration from feeling ineffective. Now, I don't, everything I'm gonna say is just coming from the heart of a pastor. That when you walk in obedience, there's an outcome that you expect. And when that outcome is the opposite of what you expected, it's defeating. That what if when Moses, when, when Elijah came down from Mount Carmel, he thought, this is gonna be it, man. I'm the one that's gonna turn this thing around. Everybody's gonna come back to God. Look what just happened. I just was a part of the most amazing miracle in generations. And even though he watched all those people bow before God, it was the two people that didn't, that he couldn't get away from. And sometimes you can watch everybody do all these things, but you get so fixated on the two that wouldn't that you ignore the dozens that did. It's that one negative comment, that one person. You can get so fixated on the people that still haven't shown back up since COVID that you fail to appreciate all the ones that are here. You can get so fixated on the one that's critical that you forget all the many who are continue to encourage. And you can get to the point where you just think, God, I'm not good enough. And maybe that's where he is. Notice what he says. He says, God, I'm just like my ancestors. And I've heard some frame that as some unhealthy comparison. You know what I think he's saying? Look, they couldn't do it and I can't do it. So why should I even try anymore? God, I've done everything you told me to do and they still won't listen. So I'm done. I quit. I know what that's like. I know what it's like to do everything that God's told you to do and look around and the outcome be the exact opposite of what you think it's supposed to be. And when that happens over and over and over and over again, you wanna quit. So much so you'll type out your resignation. Can I remind you of something really simple, but yet really profound? Obedience is your responsibility. The outcome is his. That's so simple, nobody even goes, obedience is your responsibility. The result is up to him. And when you don't get the result you want, you can't quit just because it didn't go the way you thought it would go. He looks at God and says, God, I'm done with them. But God says, but I'm not done with you. God, I'm done with them. But Elijah, I'm not done with you. So you gotta go back.
So he takes him into this cave. And y'all know the story. There's an earthquake, there's fire, there's all this kind of stuff. But I, I want you to look at what God says. Look at verse nine. So suddenly the word of the Lord came to him and he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And it's funny how some preachers read that like, what are you doing here, Elijah? I think he's saying, what are you gonna do here, Elijah? Elijah, what are you gonna do? You gonna give up or you gonna go back? You gotta, you, you gotta make a decision. And Elijah says, Lord, I've been very zealous for you. I've been very zealous for the Lord God of armies, but the Israelites have abandoned your covenant, torn down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I'm all alone. And now they're gonna take my life too. God, it didn't work. I preached the message, God, but that one that I've been waiting to choose you still won't do it. God, I had the conversation and it's like talking to a wall because they go out and they do the same dumb thing they did before we talked. I'm done. I'm done with them. The guy says, but I'm not done with you. So you gonna give up or you gonna go back? And Elijah, it's better to retreat to God than give up for good. And I don't know where you are on the spectrum today. I don't know if you're about to quit on something that God has already told you, you know you can't quit on. I don't know if maybe you retreated and God's been trying to tell you for a long time, it's time, it's time to go back. He eventually said, he'll say, go back the way you came and anoint this guy and anoint this guy and anoint this guy and choose Elisha because now your job is to mentor him for the next several years to replace you so that this thing can keep moving forward. So this, I said all that to say, don't quit, don't quit. You'll be grateful then for the thing you didn't quit on now. Don't quit, don't quit. Will you stand with me? I know we're getting late. I know we're going over time, but we're gonna worship. We're gonna sing a song and I wanna pray for you. I wanna pray for the people that are in the room that are one more thing going sideways away from quitting. We're gonna worship, we're gonna lift up our voice. And can I, can I ask some, some of our leaders, and you know who you are, some of our staff, some of our key volunteers, would y'all come down front for a minute? And I want y'all to be down here to pray over people. I wanna station some people. I know that we open up this altar sometime that allows people, come on, just come on, leaders, pastors, elders, staff, those, anybody who just feels led, prayer warriors, because I want you to be able to walk up to somebody, because today is more than just about kneeling to an altar and feeling the loneliness of carrying what you're carrying. I want you to see these people, they would love to pray for you. They would love for you to walk up, grab their hand, look in their eyes and tell them what's going on. I know every person that's just come down here right now, and they would love to be able to pray for you. And I know that's risky, and I know you think, well, they don't know me, that's okay. They know the God who knows it all. So Father, I pray right now, God, as we lift up our voice, that those people that are in need of prayer, they just need somebody to pray over them, pray with them, to help carry the burdens. God, as we lift up this song, God, flood this altar with people who are willing to say, I'm about to quit and I know I don't, I know I don't need to quit. Would you pray for me? Would you just ask God to give me strength? God, I pray that now would be a special moment in this house where people lean into you, trust your promises and find hope and strength in this space. In Jesus' In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, amen.
Thanks for listening to the Venice Church Podcast. We hope what you have just heard has inspired you to live and love like Jesus. If you'd like to know more about Venice Church or to get further connected, we invite you to visit us at our website at venicechurch.net. We'd also encourage you to download the Vintage app. There you can find more resources about how to get involved and grow in your faith. You can access the Venice Church app by going to app.venicechurch.net. Thank you so much for allowing us to be a part of your spiritual journey, and we hope to see you soon.